In the late 1960s, the Baltimore Orioles went from an up-and-coming team that vastly underperformed to the best team in baseball. Over three years, they would win an average of 106 games, claim three American League pennants, and capture the 1970 World Series. There are myriad reasons for this success, but they are often encapsulated in the phrase, the Oriole way. This series, we will ask, what is the foundry way? Meaning, what is our posture for living out the way of Jesus individually and institutionally? Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott, if we've never had the chance to meet before, and uh, I'm glad to, 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 to be with you today. Um, I don't know where you were yesterday when things got, like, apocalyptic for, like, 15 minutes. I was teaching a 16-year-old how to drive at Pratt and Light, uh, you know, and uh, so I'm in the passenger seat of, like, okay, there's a storm and people are not going to get smarter, and they're not going to drive smarter when it's raining, FYI, particularly when it's, like, Things are blowing all over the place, right? So, so I would just, yesterday, you know, we had a storm. If you're in the greater Baltimore region yesterday, it was, it was quite intense for a few minutes. But uh, so, so the first thing I did when I got home, when we did get home safely, uh, congratulations to the 16-year-old for muscling through that driving experience and getting a little bit of experience under her belt in that regard. The first thing I did was I went back up to my bedroom and I opened my closet door because in that closet door, I have a bucket. It is a bucket that uh, is, it exists because I live in a Baltimore City row home, uh, and for a long time, with all of hacks and patches and self, in, you know, like trying to fix the issue myself, I have been unable for many years to resolve a roof leak, right? Be- and, and, and we were in a position where we knew, like, the day was coming where we needed to change the roof. Now, the roof has been replaced, and yet, and yet... Like, there's just this part of me that's like, yeah, but you still got to go, and that bucket can't leave. That bucket is going to hang in there. Now, it's, you know, like, it's, it's like I'm just not ready to say goodbye to the bucket yet <laughs> because, because I, don't, I fear, honestly, the alternative. And, and honestly, I think that really described week one of our series and maybe every week going forward at, at, in this thing that we're calling the Foundry Way, which is to say, I think if we're honest, a lot of us live at a pace where we just kind of put a bucket out and we just kind of hope that like we go through stuff and we deal with people and we process pressures and, and we're just like, I just kind of hope that my like effort to contain the mess will be sufficient and not really take a step back and look that below the surface, maybe, you know, in the infrastructure of the thing, how can we maybe ask better questions and build better systems for us to, to meet the respective moment that we find ourselves in? Whether it's compassion, justice, whether it's uh, our own, like, you know, just our own sense of, like, integrating our faith in Jesus into every layer of our life. And so what we've tried to do in this series called The Foundry Way is just kind of create and point 
point to some of those areas that we want to live into, that we see the early church who, who are responding to a resurrected Savior, not a series of beliefs, live into, and, and ask ourselves that question, hey, what does this mean for us? So when you see the Foundry Way as kind of a, a thing, you know, that's, that's going to be talked about these next couple of weeks, it's not like a cute brand or a book that we're trying to sell or, or some things that we're even going to like slap in a sweetly packaged thing on the front of a website. It really is, sort of speaks to, hey, as we do life together in the family of Jesus, right? And if, and if you're new to our community, like this is who we want to be, and we hope that you will help us be that and call us on that. Or if we've been around for a bit, um, how do we understand there's no such thing as a perfect church? And if we were perfect, it was ruined the second I got here this morning because I am not a perfect person. I will say that, to, you know, that, like how do we actually live into these, these values and try to help one another be, the, you know, maximize this opportunity? Because if we're honest, like one of the biggest frustrations we know, maybe even in our own life, uh, maybe from the people that we've done life with, that people who are not followers of Jesus have about people who claim to be followers of Jesus is the inconsistency gap, right? Between the things they will be willing to say in a break room or on Facebook and the way they actually live their lives, right? And maybe that describes some of your, your pain, right? That, that there's been someone in your story who like, yeah, they, they said one thing and they did another. Now, this is not unique by the way, to people who claim to follow Jesus, right? Like, this can even go back to your family of origin. If your mother or father ever said to you, do as I say, not as I do, <laughs> right? Uh, as they're texting and driving. Do as I say, not as I do. Um, then, then, then perhaps you can understand, I think, the tension that we sort of see. Now, now what we want to do in this, in this particular Sunday, in our time and our few minutes together, is think about what it means to be a collective of people that are trying to integrate our faith in Jesus into all of the areas and layers of our lives, right? So that there's not work you, school you, you know, break room you, behind closed doors you, you know, that, that like, all of these respective yous and all these respective me's are, are, are walking in step with and being integrated into the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we want to talk about today. So, so you know, we'll call it, I guess, personal and institutional integrity. But what we're really talking about is the concept there that I just said, like integrating all of these areas of our life together. Now, now Peter knows something acutely about this this person that we're going to look at today. Now, he writes this letter called First Peter to a group of Christ followers who have been persecuted by Roman emperors and by the, the kind of the ethos following the claims that Jesus was not just another dead guy that claimed to be the Messiah, but that he was a risen Savior. And, and a group of people who, who decided to walk in that and say, we've seen that, we've, we've experienced that, it's transformed us. We're trying to walk in step as a community and a culture that was like, nope, 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 that's not happening. That's not happening here on our watch. And tried to stamp it out. So there's a group of Christians who have scattered at this point throughout this region called Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, who uh, receive this word from Peter. That Peter, who's walked with Jesus, who's talked with Jesus, who's made a fool of himself in the presence of Jesus, 
but now is encouraging others to walk in the grace and mercy that he has been shown, right? So, so Peter wants to first call us to, in these Christ followers, to, to kind of our why. The why behind our what, right? So wh- why do any of this stuff? And at first he begins by saying that it's a holy, living, and sacrificial God who is the source of any kind of integrity that we would have. Right, so if we think about what it means, like we've, we've used this like Oriel way as a, as a running illustration. And by the way, we're not going to stop probably till Memorial Day. So, so if, you, if you're tired of baseball analogies in week two, I'm just going to ask for your forgiveness and grace, right? But there's some level, right, when we, when it, why did the Baltimore Orioles have all of this success in the 60s that someone along the way came along and said, hey, we really have to identify why, what we're trying to achieve when people wear this uniform, right? There's some kind of why, you know, do we want to just make money? Do we want to win games? Do we want to sell hot dogs? Do we want to sell branding? Like, what are we trying to do when we do this thing? And what does it mean to put on this jersey? I mean, that's sort of the thing I'm saying. Like, like what we often will equate following Jesus to is a, is a set of beliefs or a set of behaviors or a place that we go to worship for an hour at a time or some cool programs or experiences that we might do through a collective of people. But Peter wants to first call us back to to the reason why, even for these Christ followers who are scattered, why it's worthy to cling and hold on to hope at a time when their lives are acutely disrupted. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So what what does Peter call them to and remind them of? That it's not your awesomeness and it's not your ability to follow the rules and it's not not a, a, a church program that like you guys crafted that is really kicking. That the reason for your hope is that God has offered us new birth, living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Into an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade. Right? So be good, not because I'm watching and I'm angry and I'm ticked and don't take me off. But because I've offered you new life that you can walk in and bask in. 1 Peter 1.16 says it this way. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy, right? That's, and, and here Peter quotes the book of Leviticus, which if, if you've ever read is just a bunch of laws and is a bit overwhelming. But the, the core point of Leviticus is even to say, hey, because of who God is, because of God's character, let's respond in kind, Right? When we understand how deeply we've been loved, it changes how we might see ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul, not Peter, says this, If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Right? And, and an analogy Paul will like, he likes put on and put off clothes language. He'll talk a lot about this um, in the sense of like, hey, if you, if you go for a run, and like you go and you, you, you get cleaned up and you take a shower and you feel clean and you feel washed and you refreshed. Those sweaty clothes that are now on the floor or in a pile somewhere, wherever they are, you probably aren't going back and putting them on. Right? You're going to walk in the refreshment of the cleansing of the grace and mercy that you've received right, from, that, from that shower. 
And in the same way, right, what, what Peter and Paul are calling us to is like a response to the grace and mercy and love of God. Now, now, Peter knows this intimately and acutely in his life. This is not good vibes and platitudes for Peter. This is not just like a, this is not just a, you guys just try real hard, okay? This is like something he embodies and lives. So do you remember a few weeks ago, if you were joining us, uh, we talked about the Last Supper and kind of this moment. Now, Peter is gathered with Jesus um, in the final moments of Jesus' life. To, to hear from Jesus that someone in this circle of people is going to betray him. Someone is going to uh, deny, and you know, and so Peter immediately jumps to the self-protection. Like, it's the rest of these jokers at the table, it wouldn't be me. I'm not the kind of guy who does things like that. You can count on me, Jesus. Radical self-reliance, radical self-reliance. Now, now Jesus kind of laughs at this, Right? And actually calls him out. Like, hey, you can actually tonight, like you're going to see it, like you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Now, now, not only does he do that in the process, like chops a guy's ear off in, in like self-protection. Um, and then in the presence of, of, of a young lady, like not, not a government official, not a Roman centurion, like denies even knowing or associating with Jesus. Oh, by the way, while he is in visual shot of being able to see Jesus being taken away. Yeah, that'll mess you up. <laughs> that'll mess you up. Because, the, because the, the last thing then he will see is that person that, that he's like been all puffed up about and all self-reliant about being nailed to a cross. That'll make a bad day. Right? That'll make a heaviness that's like, man, this is, this is what self-reliance, right, was, was all about. This is what it got me. Now, in John chapter 21, there is a beautiful picture of the restoration of Peter. Where Jesus meets Peter in the same kind of posture. He's out fishing and, 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 and invites Peter, as a resurrected Savior, to share a meal. And in the process of this, begins to ask Peter questions. He asks the same question three times. Do you love me? And Peter's response every time is, of course, yes, yes, of course. And, 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 and there's a beautiful restoration that happens in that passage. I encourage you, just for the sake of time, to, to read it yourself in John chapter 21, picking it up in verse 15. It's, it's, it's a moment where, where, where Jesus could... <laughs> It's trying to help Peter, who again is kind of getting a bit like spun up. Like, and, and he, he's like, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then like a third time, he, you know, he gets a little exasperated when, 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 when Peter's asked the question by Jesus. And all of this is sort of calling Peter back to the three times that he probably likely would have remembered quite well. You know, and this, I think, personifies like, that, that Peter's words here about a living hope in Jesus is not platitude. It's not like, no, that's a good idea for you guys, but it's not really me. I mean, this is the core conviction of Peter and probably the core struggle, right, to move from a radical self-reliance as the source of your integrity. I'm good at this. I can integrate. I do good things to saying, I know my heart. <laughs> I know the darkest parts of the human condition that live and reside in me. 
right? We often talk about the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen in the world if God is good? But we often don't talk about our own propensity, the thing that lies in us if unchecked, unguarded. And this, this very place where, where, where Peter had walked in shame, Peter is now being invited to walk in grace and mercy. And that is the invitation, I think, behind this walk towards integrity, this walk towards an integrated life, that it's not just a, a series of behaviors to uphold and a series of arguments that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to win with an unbelieving world. But to say, hey, at the core of my being, I've been washed, I've been rescued, I've been redeemed, and I am being walked with in every living part of my story. <laughs> in the places I'd rather not walk in it, I can be walked with. And what we see here, again, is that this is not about them being perfect and living perfectly, but, but about progress and posture. Peter's calling us to, to a posture of living into that hope, even when there's trials, even when, when culture or things like that pull us into a different direction. Uh, Elrod Hendricks was asked what the Oriole way was all about. He was a player and a longtime bench coach. When I, when I was a kid, he was like the bullpen coach. I think he signed an autograph for me at Memorial Stadium in 1988. Pretty sure I, I don't have no, I have no idea where that was, but I remember trying to find it on the roster and being like, I got a coach's signature? Uh. Anyway, he was cued, he was cued up a long time ago about what the Oriole way was about. And he said, um, he said it was about never beating yourself. Like that, if I could sum it up, it was about don't beat yourself. Like, don't put yourself, you know, practice, integrate these philosophies, these visions, these, these, these ways in which we live our life in a manner. Practice them in a way that when all the variables of the game of baseball come up, and they will come up, that you are prepared to live that out. That was sort of the essence of the Oriole way. Well, I think that's the call here, right? This is what Peter is calling these folks to. You're going through intense persecution. Your lives have been disrupted. How does your faith in Jesus still integrate into every nook and cranny of your life? Like all of these places where, where there's going to be variables, and there will be variables, right? We, we know this all too well. You know the gaps between your stated beliefs and the ways you carry them out, don't you? I mean, if you slow down, like you do, right? And there's other areas where if you, if you, if you sit down across the table from someone and ask them, hey, hey, what's it like to sit across the table from me? You might find some other things you didn't know about or you hoped that nobody else saw. What Peter will call us to here, and we pick this up in verses 4 through 6, you know, is, is this inheritance is kept in heaven for you whose faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. <laughs> so, so the beautiful invitation here is not like, hey, it's really hard, You've, your lives are disrupted, you're messed up by these trials, and because you guys aren't living into it, God is ticked. He's saying, no, 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 no. Like, what's happening here is that in this process, as you, as you are dealing with the pressures and the trials, you are being refined. You are being molded. Do, do not cease to lean in where you would honestly rather lean out. Where you would honestly rather just go like, nope, nope, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. This is too hard. 
build, let yourself grow in the grace and mercy that is being exposed to you by trials. Like, like just, just like some area of your house when the storm came yesterday may not have been prepared for the swath of the storm. We will spend our lives sort of asking those same questions of our heart. The storms are going to come. They will come. You will suffer. You will go through things you didn't see coming. And when that happens... It is a grace to let the grace and mercy of Jesus walk with us in those areas that we might rather go, no, thank you. I've got it all figured out myself. I think also that the culture itself calls us to this, right? This is what Peter's audience would have dealt with, the immediate audience would deal with, and what we might too. Verse 13, therefore, with your minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Right? To, to walk in the way of Jesus is going to redefine things. It might redefine a picture of success. It might redefine how you do generosity. It might redefine how you do relationships. It might redefine your picture of justice. It might redefine how you care for the poor. It might redefine a variety of things in your respective story um, that run in contrast to whether it's a cultural value, at the very least a cultural pace, that tells you, hey, you don't have time to think about that. <laughs> you don't have time to reflect on that. You don't have time to confront those things. you got a job to do. So, so our, my guess, right, and we can all relate to this, maybe if we're not even a Christ follower, is that your picture of success looks different than it did when you were 15 years old. That your picture of a good life, hopefully, has adapted and shifted from your 10th birthday to however many years old you are now. Right? And maybe even the core of the thing, right? I, I want to be a major league baseball player. I wanted to be an influencer. I, I don't know. You wouldn't have used that phrase 20 years ago. But uh, you, you might have just said, I want to be a celebrity, not famous for the sake of being famous. Uh, there would have been another way to do it. Right? So here's what I've learned. I mean, I, th I think this is like, what, what, if I just speak from the presence of the people I've had conversations with, and I think what we know is, is I don't think the world actually is expecting perfection from people who follow Jesus. And if they do, it's probably something we've curated. It's probably an expectation we've curated that we just like have our lives together. I think actually, right, what, what people want to see is a humility about the gaps in that integration. Right? Like, and when I am exposed to those gaps, am I willing to humbly receive that criticism? Am I, am I willing to say, yeah, you know what? I've got some ways to go. Let me, let, me, let me ask you for forgiveness. Let me tell you what God is doing in my story. As opposed to just kind of sweeping things under the rug and saying, like, well, no, there's no problem here. That's no, there's no problem here. Right? So I think as a challenge for us as a congregation, right? What would it look like? Like, like, like I, I'm a perfectionist, so I, I hate this idea. Like, like the core fundamental thing that's driving my story, I was talking about this between the services, is the idea like that because God loves me, I should be perfect and you'll love me best because I just really don't struggle with all the other things. And, and it's so stupidly untrue because I can in the same breath tell you all the areas of my life where I am not satisfied with like the gaps between my stated values and the things I actually do. 
right? And, and, and so you can get really overwhelmed by, by saying, hey, check your integrity for a minute. And go, gee, no thank you. I want to be happy at 12 o'clock. Um, let's just say this, right? What if today we just kind of invited God into one particular space, like one particular area, you know, whether it, it's maybe our work life, Maybe it's our definition of success. Maybe it's a particular relationship that's strained. Maybe, maybe it's, it's maybe how we engage and are thinking about justice in our moment and time. I, I don't know what it is, but, but what would it look like over the next seven days to invite God just into one area? And I, and I haven't counted how many heads are in this room or people that are watching, but, but here's what I do think would make a tangible impact on our world. If, if God was just stirring in one area of each of our stories— in our respective week, I think there would be incredible stories of grace and transformation to show a world that is demonstrably skeptical that, that the way of Jesus transforms anything at all. I think this work, this pursuit of integrity, is a personal work, yes, but it's also a communal one. Right? Um, there's, a, there's a great uh, quote by, by an ancient philosopher, Epictetus, who said, It's impossible for a person to learn what they think they already know. It's impossible for a person to learn, to, to, to learn what they think they already know. And if you have a teenager, you have a front row seat to the, living the truth of that. Um, but you have someone that comes to mind that, like, when you, when you hear that, right? There's somebody that comes to mind, like, Oh, that's my mom. That's my boss. That's the person on my block. That's, 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 uh, that's the person that comments on Facebook but never does anything about anything. It, the, the reality is it, it applies to you too. There's, there's some area of your life, there's some area of my life where Jesus likely wants to live into a phrase that he often uses to the disciples, Peter included. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, 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 you've thought about things in this particular way, but let me tell you how this actually works, how this actually carries out. The, to walk in the way of Jesus is to, is to invite individually and communally a process of unlearning, learning, and relearning what it actually means to walk in the way of Jesus. Back to the Orioles analogy for a moment, Right? Um, the whole Oriole way was based on a book called Modern Baseball Strategy by a guy named Paul Richards. The Wizard of Waxahachie. That's what they called him. Right? Can you imagine for a moment, upon signing the contract, them just like, here's your book, please memorize it and show up at spring training prepared to embody all of these things. Now there's some perfectionist and there's some do-gooder that is like, on that. There's someone else that's like, yeah, I'm really good at high school baseball. <laughs> no, thank you. And, and my talent is just going to carry me through this thing. Why do you have coaches? Why do you have a strategy? Why do you have people speaking into? Why? why? Because, because the truth is we need some people who are walking with us that can show and demonstrate to us the areas where we struggle to walk out these, these stated ideals. There is a, a book I'm just reading right now um, talking about kind of our, our modern day like inability to agree on basic set of facts and where that comes from. And, uh, and one of the things the, the author points out is this study where when a person has like decided in, a, in, a, in, a, in this particular experiment where there's two lines and they have to tell you which one's longer, that if, 
if a person has intellectually articulated it, like there's a lot of flexibility in being exposed to the actual right answer. But if they have to like explain and defend out loud why they think it is a particular answer and they're wrong, even when being confronted with like the measurement, the facts, and the right answer, they're like, no, I'm not. I'm not. See social media for more information, right? Well, like, but like, but that is, is, isn't that kind of a human, is, is there some area of your life where that's true? There's some area of my life where that's definitely true. And, and so one of the things that we have to process in the family of Jesus individually is our own mental maps and processes that have made us good at our jobs and functional in our families that, that when they meet the grace and mercy of Jesus may not actually be um, maybe the fullest expression of those words. Let me, let me give you an example from my life, right? Um, if I have internalized in my life the message that it is my job to hold everything together. Like, that's a message that I receive from my family of origin, right? Like, you, you take care of everyone else's emotion. You don't deal with your own. Imagine how the New Testament's calls to compassion could be manipulated in my heart. It might make me exceedingly compassionate. It might mean I lack boundaries. It might make me exceedingly compassionate. It might mean that I have a really hard time turning it off. Or a really hard time when, you know, like that that is the essence. There's something in your life that may look like that. To, To unlearn, relearn, and learn together in a community of people how to, how to walk together in the family of Jesus, right? So, so there's, there's, this, 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 um, there's this picture that D.L. Nathanson puts together in this book called The Compass of Shame, where, where he speaks to why, why this is a freeing thing, right? But what the invitation here is to do is like, like, like guilt and, no, hey, I've done something wrong. I failed to live up to my stated ideals. Where that moves to an unhealthy place is where you see some of these things, where instead of walking in the grace and mercy and learning and growing together in the family of God, I withdraw. Right? That's what some of us might do. We may leave the scene or we shut down or we disconnect. Others of us may attack ourselves. That's self-put down. I am the, not I did a bad thing, but I am this thing. I am this thing. There's, others of us will avoid or deny. Like we'll, 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 we'll change the subject. We may medicate in particular ways. Others of us will lash out and attack others. There's a beautiful opportunity here. What we're not talking about is just beating one another up emotionally to live into the, but we're talking about a humility that invites us to say, hey, we can be a community that's progressing together to to walk in the grace and mercy that is shown by us in in Jesus, to us in Jesus. I I love this in the the sense of even for Peter and Paul, and this is like a deep cut for me. I I never saw this. Like in Galatians 2, and even in the book of Acts, like Peter and Paul, these two church-like fathers, argue about different ways in which they, they want to integrate and carry out their faith in Jesus. But they're doing it in a way that, that, that stays at the table. That stays at the table when the temptation is to flee and go back, or maybe for Peter's case, to, to get a sword and start cutting people's ears off. Right? And, and like, there's something in our collective. I'll just kind of observe this. Can I make a cultural observation uh, that may or may not apply to you? Um, there's that phrase from history that those who, who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. 
Right? One of the things we may see in the cultural moment is a, is a sort of, hey, if we can just bury down everything bad that's ever happened and not have to walk in and repent of those things, then we'll just all grow up well-adjusted. No, what will probably happen is we'll repeat those things. Right? And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not coming to you as some purveyor of fine educational philosophy that knows how to fix that tension or find that balance between what are the terrible things in history, what are the redemptive things in history, what are the mixed bags in history. So much as I am the person trying to say, I think that's a dangerous posture for your heart, for my heart, and for a collective of us. To say, hey, let's just run from and avoid anything that's heavy or hard and not lean into the places and spaces where God's mercy and grace is inviting us individually and collectively to do life different in the family of Jesus. A conversation that came up on Tuesday night in our neighborhood group and, and I'm, it was, was, a, was, was about this, about why we need the multi-family of God. That's a, that's a sermon for a couple weeks ago. Why we need, for, for a couple weeks from now, why we need people from different cultures and places and spaces and generations and comes froms to, to speak into this story, right? Have you ever traveled somewhere um, and, and seen how, how another culture does time differently than you? And if you grew up like white Protestant work ethic like me, you're like, this is so radically inefficient. I don't understand this. It drives me crazy. And when, when honestly, like that experience is an invitation to shut up and learn <laughs> that like, Maybe there are some things that are redemptive about the way you've come up, but maybe there are some things you can see in this moment about how brothers and sisters across the world do things differently than you that can speak to some of the blind spots that you've never quite absorbed. And it was a, it was a great conversation. It was a beautiful thing, and maybe that's a plug for neighborhood groups. I don't know. The last thing I'll say um, is that walking with integrity increases both our humility and our confidence. I can say this confidently. I'll jump to Paul for a minute. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a scorekeeper, you know, and I don't think that probably it's true in human history that the guy who did the worst things in the world is the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, unless you're really antagonistic towards Christianity, I'm not sure that you would equate Paul into, like, the worst list, why does he say it? Because the closer he gets to Jesus, the more he becomes aware of his need for Jesus in every nook and cranny of his life. So when we come to this place of integrity, we're, again, we're coming back to a posture that says, Lord, speak to our hearts, to us, about us. And, and in that, we will find mercy and freedom. Closing thought before communion. John the Short, who is a real person, I did not make that up, and I'm not offending him in some way. That was what he was known by. John the Short is a desert father um, from a couple hundred years after this passage would have been written in 1 Peter, who was once preaching a sermon to a collective. And upon sermon being preached, the heckler in the crowd, and thank you for not being one of those today, uh, said to John the Short, John, your, short, your cup is full of poison. In other words, I don't like the cut of your jib. I don't like who you are. I don't like what you're about. And listen to his response. This is his response, his church, early church father. Imagine if you could see the inside of the cup. Imagine if you could see the inside. Now, the beautiful invitation of communion is, is that Jesus knows the status of the inside. Jesus knows the status of those places and spaces, and even more than you do, then you'd rather not go. 
And the invitation is very similar to the reinstatement of Peter. Here is, here is the invitation to walk with the living God. To, to find grace and mercy and reinstatement and, and truth and challenge and comfort in slowing ourselves down and actually receiving it. Not just talking about it, but receiving it. Communion is a chance for us this morning to come and receive. So I'll pray for us. There's two stations in the front. There's two stations in the back. They're all gluten-free. A chance for us to receive, to slow down, and to let the grace and mercy of Jesus speak into our story.